Well, Pastor Benji had an out-of-state memorial come up this week, so his Mark series is officially postponed a week. It will start next week, not today, officially. Nevertheless, Pastor Greg is starting up tonight with Romans. I encourage you to come out at 6 o'clock. That sermon series is starting on time. And we're going to, like those very messed up people, and my wife is one of them, that skip to the very end of a mystery to find out the solution before they ever read the book or watch the series. We're going to jump all the way to the end of Mark. We're unofficially going to start the series by going to the last chapter. I know that's a little weird. There's a reason for that, and it might make sense. It has to do with the title of our sermon today, and I'm not big on titles, but Pastor Greg gave me kudos for landing one that was very Benji-esque. Quit wrangling snakes and go help that person dangling from the cliff. My titles tend to be something like Mark 16. Here's the verses. So I I did spend some time chewing on that one, but that's where we're going. Officially, we're going to Mark 16, 9 through 20. And it's a little bit like a deleted scene. It's a little bit like a cliffhanger. If you've ever watched a series on Netflix that said one season and you hoped that more were coming and you forgot to take a look at the fact it was from 2007 and they're not going to extend that series anymore, you get to the final episode and there's no resolution it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like fan fiction even. I got fooled once by some Star Wars. This is long before they restarted the series. It was long before Disney took over, and I was just hopeful. I landed on YouTube, and there was something about Boba Fett and Mandalorian. I couldn't even find it. And I posted it on Facebook. I'm usually very hesitant to do that, and all my, all my geeky friends and students pointed out, James, that's just fanfic, fan fiction. Uh, it's not happening, and my heart was crushed. I love Boba Fett for reasons I don't even understand. He's a scoundrel and a bad guy, and I shouldn't like him, but as every other young person in my generation, he's about the coolest character in Star Wars that isn't Chewbacca. But we're going to go there. We need the context first, though. I love context, so we're going to start at first one, but I'm really leaving that for Benji, but you need to keep it in your brain this entire sermon. Mark 16, 1 through 8 really matters for where I'm going today. But I'm only going to read it and say a couple things because it's Benji's territory for where he's going with the series. Benji watching Jesus in Mark. But we'll start with Mark 16, 1, even though we're going to spend our time in the verses that follow verse 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And even in those eight verses, verse eight becomes very important for today. 
Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The women see an empty tomb and they see that Jesus isn't there and they're terrified. And imagine if Mark was crazy enough to end the book there. What a horrible ending. It's an unfinished series. What do you mean the tomb's empty and then you stopped? What an odd decision. Was he stolen by scoundrels? Did the Romans come and take him and move him to mess with the disciples? Where is he? And there's some strange guy that says, well, he's going to Galilee, but try to wrap your brain around that if you're not our side of the resurrection. What are you talking about? And Mark records that trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And if Mark ended there, it would be just like as if you were binge-watching NCIS, all 13 seasons of it, on Netflix. And in the middle of that season, they did a crossover episode with NCIS New Orleans, which isn't even a good show. Sorry if you like it. But they do a crossover episode that Netflix doesn't even carry. So you're left with this story you can't finish. And you have to go to Amazon Prime and pay $2 just to watch it. That might be a true moment from my life. Okay, it is a true moment from my life. I love watching Perry Mason and Matlock and NCIS. I'm older than, well, not than I look, but I'm older than I am in some ways. I'm bald. Okay, if you didn't know, I got no hair, and people sometimes think I'm older than I look. Netflix actually did that. My wife and I were watching. We do love NCIS. We love all murder mystery, legal drama shows. Not all, but many. And they had part one, but not part two. We had to go track it down. Imagine ending a gospel that way. The tomb's empty, but where's Jesus? Did we, as people claim, just become confused women that don't know where their loved one is? If you've heard me talk about that before, please don't offend women that way. That's offensive and not accurate. The Gospels deal with that, as they do with every other possibility for Jesus being anything other than resurrected. The Gospels deal with that. But if Mark, 8, Mark 16, 8 stops there, what an odd place to finish. And nevertheless, it's arguable, in fact, very arguable, and I think it's the case, that not only is verse 8 the last remaining verse of Mark, the last one that we have, I think it's actually the last one Mark wrote. I think he wrote a cliffhanger. And he wrote a cliffhanger so that Christians would have to go finish the story. That anybody that bumped into it would go, wait, it can't be done. You can't finish that way. And they'd go like the Ethiopian in Acts, find somebody who knew the rest of the story? Or like the kids' series, Story Keepers, that's in the church library on DVD, somebody that they knew would have to tell them an interesting story that was completely true, by the way. Story doesn't mean untrue. Story doesn't inherently mean fiction. They would tell the story of Jesus after the cross. But what about the remaining verses? Well, they're part deleted scene because Mark certainly knew those details. He knew them, and I think he chose not to include them. But there are clear parallels in the other Gospels to the verses we're going to read today and focus on. And it's part fan fiction where somebody filled in the story because they felt that it was awkward. 
Like Boba Fett, who has a whopping something like 18 to 46 seconds in the entire series, even though many of my generation were captivated by it, they started writing books. And I have three novels on my shelf because I'm that geeky. But three novels on my shelf that finish the story, which is why somebody like me will fight, not fight, fist fight, but will argue with you that Boba Fett's not, in fact, dead if you happen to see the series. And if you didn't, how could you not watch that series? It's terrific, if you're a geek at least. But it's part fan fiction where somebody answers it, but it isn't the authorized person. It isn't George Lucas completing his story. It's not Steven Spielberg explaining something that was cut out. It's not J.J. Abrams doing another movie. It's somebody else that happens to have a blog that types something in, and people become fans of it. And just to warn you, if you hadn't noticed already, we're going to get a little bit academic, a little bit heady, just like Cody, our prayer of confession reader this morning, and I do on Sunday nights with our youth in the youth apologetics class. We're going to push and challenge. I'm going to push and challenge a little bit. And it might make you a little bit uncomfortable. But I trust if I can take my junior high students there, at least if they'll try to go there with me, you can too. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to email me or contact me sometime this week or just hunt me down on a Sunday and say, what in the world were you talking about? But this is in our Bible, so you need to know. Even though I think verse 9 through 20 aren't scripture, which is what we're going to talk about today, and I think there's a good case for that, don't panic, we need to know because it's in our Bible. But you might have noticed a footnote there that we'll come back to. So first we're going to tackle what's known as the shorter ending. This probably isn't in your Bible. Look at verse 9. You might have that footnote. Take a look at what it reads. We're going to come back to that. But most translations don't even include this next section that I'm going to go to. It is in some copies of Scripture that we have. They're later copies closer to us rather than closer to the originals. But this probably isn't even in your Bible. It's essentially fan fiction that isn't by Mark, but it was written by somebody who wanted to complete that story. And before you just assume bad things about them, they may not have had poor intentions. It could have been a scribe that's just writing a note that knows, hey, look, here's scripture. I'm going to put in pencil out here. What the answer is for the person that grabs this and doesn't have a Christian around to answer the story for them. But unless you have the NASB, the NEB, the TEV, or the NRSV translations, if you don't know what those are, that's okay. It just means you don't have it in your hand. It's unlikely to be in your Bible. The only one of those four that I use regularly is the NASB, New American Standard Bible, excellent translation. And it makes a note of this along with those others. Here's what it says from the NASB, quote, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation, end quote. That's the shorter ending, and the NASB includes it for you. It's in Greek Greek transcripts that we have, but they come much farther down the road than some other manuscripts we have from the originals. And remember, the originals are the only ones that are inerrant, the only ones that because they're inspired by God are without 
mistake. That's what inerrancy applies to. It isn't every single copy. Or we'd have a problem when we came to the adultery Bible. It was a translation in the like 1600s where they accidentally removed the word not in the phrase, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so the translation actually said, thou shalt commit adultery. We have a problem if inerrancy goes to that copy of Scripture. It doesn't. It goes to the original. The theology of the inerrancy of Scripture is talking about the original manuscript, which we don't have, which I think, if you've ever heard me talk about it, is a good thing, because what will we do? Like the Israelites who worship the things in, in the uh, ark, we'd find a way to worship the book itself and not pay attention to the words that come from the God we should worship. Personally, I think that's why we don't have the originals. We'd enshrine them, and we'd sing songs to the shrine instead of living by what Mark said. But that's what it says in the shorter ending. It's good. It solves the cliffhanger. It even fits with Scripture. The words are a little interesting, at least when translated. I don't know if Mark would have used imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And hopefully as Benji goes through that, you'll see that's not really the kind of word that that Mark picks. He likes immediately, not imperishable. I know they're both big words, but little kids use immediately. Most of the time, little kids aren't cruising around saying imperishable proclamation. Run into the kitchen. I have an imperishable proclamation. I want McDonald's today. (laughs) They don't do that. But they will run in, immediately, let's get some fries. They'll do that. But it fits. And yet there's a reason that most translations choose not to include it. And even the four that do make it very clear, we don't think this is Mark. They're trying to indicate it's probably just a scribal notation or something down the road that got added because it was awkward to end at verse 8, either on accident because it was lost or on purpose because Mark ended there and people have just struggled with it. They don't know why. But as I said, I think it's a cliffhanger he meant to leave it as. But that's the shorter ending. There's also a longer ending, and that's what you see in verse 9 through 20. Look at that footnote or whatever you have. There's probably a line, at least in my Bible, there's a line and then a parenthetical phrase. It says, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's most likely in your Bible, but it isn't in our earliest manuscripts, those closest in time to Mark. And quite often, you'll, you might even hear this, Scripture will be compared to a giant, long-term game of telephone. If you ever, ever play this at a party or with some younger students where you tell, I, I encourage you, at some point in your life, when you're older than junior high, you have to play with a bunch of junior high boys. It's, it is one of the worst and most entertaining moments ever because by the second person, the, the message is changed because they change it on purpose. The first kid's like, ooh, I'm going to be the one to change it. This is the first, one of the few times I didn't want to be at the front of the line. I wanted to be at the end. So the per, first person's trying. They say what the message, and the second person tweaks it. So the first person says something like, let's read Mark 16. And the second person goes, we're going to go to Disneyland, and you're buying. You're like, how did you even get that? And the the kid says, well, I don't know. I wanted to be funny. Actually, it probably wouldn't even be that tame. It would be something about passing gas or something else. 
because they're junior high boys and they're awesome. I love them. But they cannot, for the life of them, play a good version of telephone. Meanwhile, the girls are over there. They're trying to get it right. By the end of the message, they're actually pretty close. Sometimes scripture gets accused of that. How could we know what the originals say? We're 2,000 years removed. Like a big game of telephone, it has to have gone wrong and then. It's a horrible analogy, by the way. If we played telephone by the protocol that we passed on scripture, you could take a bunch of kindergartners and have them accurately pass on a Shakespearean play. Because along the way, you'd have done word counts, and you'd have checked and proofed it, and you'd have made sure it was right, and if you found a copy that was just awful, you'd have thrown it out, and if you found a copy that needed tweaks, you'd have made corrections along the way. You would never let it become a comic book, nothing wrong with graphic novels. But you wouldn't let a bunch of junior high boys tweak it, not if you were living by the protocol of scripture transmission that the scribes were living out. And yet they were human. And so they did make mistakes. Could you imagine with no computer and no whiteout writing all of Genesis and on the last page you make a mistake and it's not a piece of paper, it's a 50-foot scroll. What do you do? You do what all of us do. You roll it up and hope nobody notices. No, 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 no. You scratch it out, and you, and you correct it. Or, at times, they would chuck it, and they'd start over, because they did take it that seriously. It mattered to them. So again, that al- analogy, if you ever hear somebody use it, you're on Hancock's campus, you're at work, you're crazy enough to engage people online regarding faith, and they use, say, oh, scripture like telephone is just messed up, say, no, no, no. Not this telephone game. We can play telephone, but it's different than you've ever played before. At every step, we're going to check that you got it right. We're going to ask the first person. We're going to sit down. And when I said word count, they had letter counts and word counts. They knew the middle of what they were copying. They knew the middle letter and word of Genesis and of Mark. And they made sure that it was right. Or they went and they corrected it or they threw it out. But yes, over time, some of those things got collected, and if somebody wasn't paying attention, they might have argued that it was Scripture and not a correction. So there's this amazing field called textual criticism that if you want to go study is wonderful. Just make sure you stay with the biblical side of it and don't get carried away with the liberal side of it. That's not a political statement, by the way. That's, a, that's an academic statement right there. Where the analogy applies, though, is this. The closer it is to the original manuscript means there was the least amount of opportunity for human error to come into play. There's less of a need for correction or for a little bit of more rigorous academic application on examining that text. Because if it's the one right after the one Mark wrote, it has less of a chance to have a mistake in it. Instead of being the fifth copy of the fifth copy, it's the first copy. I'm not saying that's what we have, but when it says the most 
reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. What it's talking about is two, two in particular that we have intact of Scripture that are from about the 300s, which feels like it's a very long time, but in terms of ancient texts, is no time at all. They're from the 300s. That's very close to the original. Compared to other works of antiquity, it's minuscule. On top of that, those are what we have intact, but we have scrap upon scrap and piece upon piece in the 25,000 plus range for all documents that tell us we know exactly what Scripture says. And what it indicates is this is a late edition. In fact, one of those scraps that we found recently of Mark, I'm not saying it's Mark 16, but one of those scraps we found recently of Mark, their arguing is from the first century as close as 50 years, which is no time at all. It's like an email to them if you're dealing with ancient texts. For ancient documents, 50 years is nothing. And from that evidence, not just of that one scrap, but from the total of evidence in the earliest copies of Mark 16 that we have, these verses just don't exist, which means they're unlikely to be Scripture. They're unlikely to be in the original. And this is made even clearer when you look at the content. We're going to read through it. If you look at it, again, part of it's like a deleted scene. Mark surely knew that information, but he chose not to include it. You go to the other remakes that came a couple years later of Luke and John and Matthew, and they decided to add that scene in and shoot it because Mark left it out, because they wanted to include it. But Mark chose to cut this information out. He could have written it, but he doesn't seem to have. That's much of the content, but if you look at it, there's some others that don't fit anywhere else in Scripture. Not unless you get a little weird with how you interact with Scripture. For example, verse 18 has actually killed people when they've tried to live that out. And while it isn't as extreme or problematic as verse 18, and few people take any issue with it, We were reading verse 14 or talking about verse 14 in a camp we were recently with at our students, and I think it's almost as troublesome, especially if it's not Scripture. Now, if it was Scripture, we'd have to deal with it, but let's take a look. 16, verse 9 through 13. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping, When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she'd seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. You listen to that, it's very accurate. They're great, they match Scripture. But they're a little bit like a deleted scene from a sci-fi movie that doesn't have the CGI completed yet. I don't know if you've watched that. I encourage you to go watch The Avengers without CGI. It's hilarious and awful. There's all these weird people running around and they're fighting things that don't exist or they're fighting other people. The costumes are horrendous because all of that's added in later. It's an uncompleted scene at best, which is because Mark probably didn't include it. And by the way, if you want the inspired biblical picture of the resurrection appearances, here's where you should look. Luke chapter 24, John chapter 21 and 22, and Paul when he's talking about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. They give an excellent picture of this is what happened. They go way beyond these verses that are included at the end of Mark that Mark probably didn't write. 
if you want the complete picture that is inerrant, that we know is from God, go look in those chapters. Don't go to Mark 16 after verse 8. It's probably not Scripture. Now verse 14. The others were getting here, but verse 14. This is one that I, I struggle with because it doesn't, to me, seem to fit other pictures of Jesus in Scripture. Verse 14, later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. It's a bit of a hard verse. And it sounds like it fits Jesus when he's talking with Doubting Thomas. It certainly would be what it's indicating. But if you go look at where Jesus is talking to to Thomas, in the longer phrase, by the way, we named him Doubting, Jesus didn't. I don't feel like it catches the tone, especially when you realize my favorite Greek study tool because of total cheat, cheat help with it by Reinecker and Rogers says that could be in, translated insult as easily as rebuked. But is that how Jesus deals with our doubt and our questions and our struggle? Even when he's talking to Thomas, he doesn't refuse Thomas the opportunity to come touch his hands. He affirms us because we don't have that opportunity. But he doesn't condemn Thomas. He challenges him. Rebuke might fit. Insult certainly doesn't. He doesn't insult Thomas. Like I said, he didn't give Thomas the name Doubting. We did. A pastor did, most likely, because it's catchy for a sermon title. We're going to talk about Doubting Thomas today. And Thomas certainly did doubt, but I'd challenge that Jesus insulted Thomas for that doubt. You need to know this. We are harder on doubts than Jesus was. If you are struggling with questions or issues about faith or you have doubts, you need to understand the Jesus that meets you in those doubts. He affirms the dog scraps lady. He affirms the centurion. He affirms the bleeding water, bleeding lady in her faith. He affirms us because of how removed we are through time. That is in the conversation he has with Thomas. But he challenges Thomas. He doesn't insult him. He insults the Pharisees. He he is harsh with self-righteousness. But not with doubt. For the doubter, he comes along and he directs him to the evidence. That's what he did with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is about to lose his head. And Jesus says, look at the evidence, John. Again, he doesn't save his cousin, which he totally has the power to do. But he doesn't condemn him for doubting. He says, John, look at Scripture and look at the evidence. And if they match up, be confident. If you have doubts, know this. He embraces you and guides you to truth. So bring those struggles to church. Take them to your small group leaders and the elders and the pastors. Ask questions. Parents, if your children have doubts, if they ask a question you couldn't imagine them saying, having gone to Awana and so many years of Sunday school and they were in gyms and whatever else we offer, or you have a teenager in my youth group, they say, the teacher said this, and I don't know if I believe Genesis anymore. Don't panic. Go do some homework with them. Go answer the questions, but don't condemn them, because Jesus doesn't. 
Now, don't hijack every small group that you're in with the same question or the same kind of question or even just a question that has nothing to do with your t- what you're talking about. There's a Sunday school leader somewhere in the next hour that has spent, hopefully, time working on their lesson. And if you come in with every single gun you could possibly fire off along the lines of doubt and faith and, and questions, they'll never get to their lesson. So don't take every class over and be that person. Talk to them beforehand or afterwards or set up a time midweek to meet and go do coffee. That's the discipleship Pastor Greg has been talking about all summer. Let's encourage each other in our faith. The reality, though, is for 2,000 years, our faith has been tackling questions longer, actually. And it's done just fine. It can handle your teenager's question. There are plenty of answers. Just go find the solutions. Like I said, don't take everything over, but make sure that you strengthen your faith through sound logic that's filtered through Scripture and biblical answers. Scripture's never had an issue with reason or rationality. In fact, it has a bigger problem, I think, with blind faith than rational rational faith. Excuse me. In our youth groups, we call this logic on. It comes from a theme we had a couple years ago, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual logiku. It's a, trans, it's a conjugation. Logiku. This is your spiritual, also able to be translated, your reasonable, your rational, your intelligent act of worship. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul had no problem with a reasoned faith. And every problem with a blind faith that was unwilling to do homework. Make sure your faith is shored up by the logic that God gave us brains for. Now, as if a shorter ending and a longer ending weren't enough, verse 14, by the way, finds another set, and yes, I said set, of insertions that I'd forgotten about since my Greek two days a long time ago. It's another apparently non-Markin summary to wrap up what was considered an unusual ending. If you'd like to see it, you can find it in a translated sidebar of Tyndale's New Greek English Interlinear New Testament. Titles as tough as the book is. But if you want to see it, you can go find it. I have a copy of it. You can can track me down at some point today if you want just to read through it. Here's the deal with that one. It's so clearly not from Mark that they don't even mention it because they're already mentioning so much but you can track it down and you can find answers to it. Do so if you need to. In case I haven't pushed you enough yet, hold on to your Baptist hats for the next few verses. It's going to get a little uncomfortable in regard to your charismatic side, perhaps. Verse 15, He said to them, Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. 
This passage, although there's many things that do fit with Scripture, this passage is why you don't build your theology or your spiritual practice on one obscure and deleted passage, debated passage. God certainly has the power and authority to command this. I mean the picking up of snakes and handling poison. And God certainly has not done so anywhere else in Scripture. Unless you are taking his commanding of Moses to pick up the snake staff or one story, one account of Mark when he gets, sorry, of Paul when he gets bitten by a snake on Malta as universally prescriptive, something we all have to do rather than particular and descriptive, telling us what happened in a particular situation. Don't build your doctrine or your worship service on something that both sound biblical scholarship and faithful pastoral study says doesn't belong there. So what do you do with the end of Mark? Verses 9 through 20. My suggestion is stop after verse 8. I think that's where Mark planned on it. I really do think he left a cliffhanger that we have to answer for everyone. It fits the tone of his gospel. There's urgency in it. There's power in it. And he wants Christians to answer what happened. I think that's where Mark goes. Even if it isn't, it's unlikely that verse 9 through 20 matches Mark's original ending that we in that case would have lost. So I would say accept God's providence, ending it at Mark 8, 16, 8 anyway. It almost certainly isn't the verses that are written there, which is why your Bible points it out. It wants you to know that. So if there was an ending to Mark, it's gone. And God is sovereign over that. So I would say either way, whether Mark intended it or God removed it, be okay with the ending at verse 8. That's at least where divine providence has taken us. And then, go study. Far from undermining your confidence in Scripture or inerrancy, this should give you confidence. The people that translate your Bibles are not trying to hide anything from you. Here's what God said is what they're saying. Here's what God said. Here's what the historical evidence includes, but we don't have any reason to believe it's what God said, and we have every reason to discount it. So don't go handle snakes as part of worship. Imagine these had snakes in them instead of crackers and juice. What a terrifying practice. And there are Christians or people that claim to be Christians in the South that do this. It's an actual snake handling denomination. But go study. It should give you more confidence, not less. If you'd like more on this particular subject, by the way, at the end of his sermon series, Benji Watching Jesus, Pastor Benji, at this point at least, plans on releasing a number of daily vines that week, the week after verse 8, that will talk about this. So look for those. They're coming. Your pastor has a set of articles he would encourage you to read that will further the conversation from just a half hour on a Sunday morning. So go take a look at those. And if you can't wait, or if that's not enough, go do your own homework. Go find out the answers. Go find out why I have confidence in that this isn't the end and that I don't need to panic that we lost Mark. Go find out what's going on, but do a little bit of homework. Just know this. Not everybody that claims to be an authority and has a blog should actually get your attention. I know that seems obvious, but think of not you, you're certainly smarter than this, but all your friends that post the dumbest things online. 
And don't go there, especially on this topic. Use your brain. God created you with an amazing computer in your head that goes beyond computing. Use your brain. He expects us to. It's part of who we are, and it needs to be part of our faith. But let's wrap up our thoughts for this morning before we transition to communion. Make a little more of a sermon, less of an educational moment, I guess. What do I want you to get out of this? Number one, know your Bible. Know what is and isn't Scripture. We should be experts on God's Word. And all too often, as American Christians in particular, who have the Bible in our pockets and on our shelves and at our hands like never before, we are biblically illiterate. We choose not to read it. We choose not to know it. So know it. Know why this isn't Scripture if it isn't. Know what is Scripture and why you should live by it. Know that it's authoritative, whether you like it or not, and that affects how you interact with it. God, I don't like that you said this, but I have to live by it because you're my king, and I don't get to make it up. Think about how that would transform our culture and our churches because all too often we're going the other way. God, I don't like it, so I'll just read the other verse I like better. John 3.16, I'm good with that. <laughs> Ten Commandments, I don't like them so much. We'll just remove those. It's in the Old Testament anyways. I never read that. I do, by the way, before you think your pastors aren't reading the Old Testament. But so often we don't. The Bible's incredible. The almighty and majestic God chose to communicate with us because he's relational. And on top of that, his, his communication is clear. Don't let this undermine that statement. We know what God said. We just don't like it. But know your Bible. Second, logicon, reason faith. Make sure your faith isn't blind, but is built upon the solidness of historical Christianity, on logic, on reason, on evidence. It's exactly what God pointed to. So make sure you have a strong and reasoned faith. And if you don't, go find the answers. For they are out there. And finally, this is from verse 8. Go answer the cliffhanger for someone. That's what we've been commanded to do. Ending at Mark 16.8 necessitates completing the story for somebody around you. It means you have to go to somebody and say, let me tell you what happened next. And let me tell you why that matters. So quit wrangling poisonous snakes and go help the person that's falling off the cliff. That's Mark 16. Go tell them what happened to Jesus and what difference he has made in your life. And by the way, isn't that the very thing we celebrate at communion? Here's what happened next. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he was put in the grave and we knew exactly where he was. And he rose again having conquered death and sin. And when they found the empty tomb, they rejoiced because their sins were forgiven and they saw their Savior. And there's so, many, so much evidence that the Savior was risen 
And it got passed down, and I bumped into it at this point in my life. And let me tell you the difference Jesus has made. And no, I'm not perfect. And yet he has made me perfect. For I'm no longer guilty of sin. Would you like to know forgiveness and grace? That's what we celebrate today. And that's what Mark, I think, is leaving us at the cliff of and saying, go fill the story in for somebody else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that the tomb was empty. We thank you for appearing, that we would have confidence that you rose, that we would know that we're forgiven. Lord, we thank you for grace. For without it, we could not stand before you and have anything but terror in our minds. So this morning, we celebrate that you are almighty God and you are the God who loves us and forgave us. In Jesus' name, amen.